Oh, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Welcome to the Truman Show, everybody. Good to see all of you here on This Week in Mormons. I'm Jeff Openshaw, your founder and co-host. Happy to be with you this week, and I thank you very much for joining us. Whether you are streaming it wherever you get podcasts, hit that subscribe button. If you're watching on YouTube, shout out to you, our YouTube viewers. Please hit that subscribe button as well so you can not just hear the podcast content, but see our beautiful visages. Seriously, everybody, in case you didn't know, you can actually watch the podcast on YouTube. I don't know if people knew that. But uh, anyway. Glad you're all here. Thank you again to our Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash This Week in Mormons. You guys help make the show possible, and that is much appreciated, helping us keep the lights on in an ever more expensive world of podcasting and all that jazz. And we hope you'll also follow us on social media. Enough plugging. I'm thrilled this week once more to bring back my dear friend, Jared Gillins. What's going on, dude? Hey, um, nothing's going on. I will tell you, though, uh, you know, I, I liked that Truman Show reference. Kelsey and I recently rewatched that. It's, it was like, it's a great a movie. Month, you know, it, yeah, it holds up. I hadn't seen it for over a decade. And we were like, oh, you know, sometimes these older, quote unquote, older movies, um, just you don't realize that they didn't age well. But I think that one ages really well. Also, incidentally, a couple of nights ago, we I don't know why, we, we both just got the hankering to watch Prince of Thieves, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Okay, that's just an experience. And it holds up as well. No, I mean, it, a, we're a couple of things. What? Yeah, no, there were a couple of things where I was like, mm, that's kind of that, that kind of. Raunchy, like not raunchy, but just sort of, sort of deviant sexual humor, like you know, because the the sheriff of Nottingham, you know, is like a scoundrel in, in like a, yeah. in the worst way, and they, and they try to make it kind of funny, and you're kind of like, mm, post me too, not as funny. Well, but Alan pour, Rickman, pour one out for is Alan. always delightful, yeah. right? He's wonderful, and you know, and I was kind of thinking, um, and those of you, you know, bonus if you're watching on YouTube, but you know, I haven't had a haircut in a long time. You because look good. Um, here in Eastern Idaho, it's kind of hard to find a barber or a salon that, um, is currently exercising COVID precautions. <laughs> like, so I, so I bet I was like looking at Kevin Costner's hair and I was like, I think I could do that. Yeah. I think I'm not too far from a, a Kevin Costner Robin Hood haircut. Now let's talk about your facial hair though. Going, on. Is this deliberately a mustache like Chester A. Arthur situation or is it no, just, I'm oh, you just can't see it very well because my beard is getting very gray. Yeah. Those so it I mean it the mustache is a little longer, I think, than the the beard is a little more closely cut. That is on purpose. I'm just kinda uh-huh. trying out different looks, but uh it's a full beard. It's not a you look great. It's not a full chest. I haven't seen you bearded for a while, so I'm excited you'll be joining the fray. I, I really didn't like wearing a mask over a beard, but I've found keeping it trimmed short like this, it's it's been okay. So it's manageable. Yeah. Yeah. I don't no, know what it's fine. like I, to I, wear a mask without a beard, so I, I yeah, no, you because you keep you maintain the beard year round. I, I generally wear my beard seasonally, but I yeah. skipped it last winter because I was like, Ugh, I don't like this beard mask thing. But I was just like, you know what? It's time to bring the beard back. I uh, I really debated letting it go and seeing if I could do a full COVID beard last spring, but I didn't trim for like a month or so, and it was just it's that it's just scraggly and getting wiry, and you've got to commit at that point to make it happen. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. Oh yeah, no. Once you get like that length, you have to start investing in some product. I like had some, some oil. Beard yeah. Balm. Yeah. 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 No, I use beard oil. Even in this short, I'll use beard oil because I just think it helps keep it soft and also kind of conditions the skin underneath it. Mm-hmm. Helps so you don't get all that uh, beard dandruff on yeah. your shirt. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, if it gets longer, you got to get something like a like a balm sort of thing to kind of moisturize it and keep it manageable. Because like I said, otherwise you get you go full like Hemingway. I bet uh, I bet Brigham Young and John Taylor had these conversations. Oh yeah, yeah. they probably used like seal blubber imported <laughs> from Canada 
as their beard oil. I don't know. So I bet you all wanted to hear about this, everybody. That's why you tune in. This is the hot content that people listen to Twim for. That's what I'm talking about, man. This is the dream. I'm, I'm, I'm stoked though. We're already, man, we're already up on conference. That's coming up here in a week and a half. I know. And, uh, always exciting. And I'm going to make a controversial, well, I mean, I don't know if it's a controversial statement. So I just recently finished, I was kind of going back through conference because I hadn't like re-listened or reread all of it. And so I was like, here's some talks I haven't listened to whatever. And I'm ready to definitively state Jeff. Yeah. That the best talk was Elder Gong's. I do like that Elder Gong. His talk about uh, room in the inn. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's phenomenal. And I don't know. I mean, I guess that's subjective. To me, that was the best talk. That, to me, that was the talk that spoke to me. See, I, ad- I admire you. I went into the, six months ago, I went into it saying like, I'm going to read one of these talks every day. I'm going to be into it. I've, I've tried, but I have not succeeded. I have not succeeded so, in my effort. So what helped me is over the last couple of months, I'm recovering from a passive shoulder injury. Mm-hmm. Because I'm over 40, so things happen to you without you actually doing anything. So I've had this frozen shoulder thing that I have to go to physical therapy for. And every day I have to stretch twice a day, morning and night, for like at least, you know, it takes me 30 to 40 minutes to do all these stretches. So I listen to stuff while I'm doing my stretching. And I was like, you know, at the beginning of each stretching session, I'm going to listen to one conference talk. So that helps me. You might as well. I need to get disciplined like that because I'll just find myself, I I could be in a similar situation, but I'll just find some other distraction. Like I could put on an episode of fresh prints while mm-hmm. I'm stretching, you know, I could, I'll find something else. Uh, I, speaking I, of fresh I, content, I, fresh prints, I'm sure that's aged I, extremely I, well. It's uh yes and no. It was surprisingly in the early seasons, a lot more, um, almost like pretty like black lives matter in the first couple of seasons, a lot more, a lot more subject matter than I remember talking about, like, not fighting the power per se, but like really getting into a lot of issues affecting African-Americans more on the nose. Like in the show, they kind of lampoon it because, you know, the the Banks family are wealthy black Republicans and all that kind of stuff. Right. There's an irony and they acknowledge that. It's funny they acknowledge the irony because Uncle Phil, they talk a lot more in early seasons how he was like a big time civil rights activist, how he said he marched in Selma. They t- There's a lot more of that going on in the first couple of seasons and they just kind of drop it for for some reason. I found myself many, many months ago randomly watching the first episode to see how it would be. And then I've just kind of picked it off little by little ever since. Yeah. It's aged okay. That'd be interesting to do. You know, Will Smith has talked about uh, re- like doing a reboot, like starting it, like doing a new freshman. They're doing a dramatic reboot. Yeah. Right? It's, like it's they're real. taking out, yeah. I think 90% of the comedy and making it a, a serious dramatic show yeah. about a kid from Philly who has to leave because of gang violence. And, you know, it's a, I, I don't know. I don't think that sounds amazing because I like the laughs from Fresh Prince, yeah. but you know, I'd be willing to give that a shot. I like Will Smith. Generally, he, he makes he at least he acts in some pretty decent films. I think the the funny thing to watch on that show is in the later seasons how you see Will Smith now, who's like at the cusp of becoming the biggest movie star in the world, and so it's just funny watching him come into his own and then realize like he's at the point where he is like way beyond this show, but he's still doing it to finish it out. I mean, he made the final season between bad boys and independence day, for example, like, Oh, interesting. Like, like yeah, that, he's, he was, yeah, he was huge. Then they aired the finale and independence day came out like six weeks later. Right. And so, and that's what kind of cemented him. So it's kind of funny watching the later seasons. Cause he doesn't seem like Will Smith, like the fresh Prince. He seems like Will Smith movie star who just so happens to still be contractually obligated to do a show. Right. He does a great job. Uh, I, I will just note my favorite running gag on that show is Uncle Phil physically throwing jazz out the front door. I, it makes me laugh 
every time, like laugh out loud. Yes, yeah, I which is another th- another little quirk that kind of goes out the window in later seasons. Little things, and <laughs> Will would break the fourth wall a lot more in early seasons, like just random stuff. Oh, that's right, he would. Yeah. There's things that they don't carry over as much. It's kind of interesting. But uh, well, jazz is, is anyone to kind of fade. In, in a world of recap podcasts, um, you know, recapping popular sitcoms, I don't think anybody's doing Fresh Prince, at least not yet. I mean, I know Parks and Parks and Rec is doing one now with Rob Lowe, who's actually oh really, which I've I've haven't heard it yet. I just love that they got the guy who shows up at the end of season two and then leaves halfway through season six. Recap the whole show that you were on only like sixty percent of Rob Lowe. Go right ahead. Well, that's like how uh, with West Wing, it's, it's like Josh you had Joshua Molina, right? I know, I know, it's fair. Who is like a, a wonderful, great character in the show, an essential, I would argue, character in the show. But he also was kind of he came in a little late and then was backburnered after about a season and a half. So, well, he showed up midway. Anyway, but, you know, he does a good fine job on the West Wing podcast. Oh, I love the West Wing. I think the I think and the then, West uh, Wing Weekly the, was the first like show recap podcast that I can think of. I think so. Yeah. And then my favorite, though, probably, and it was because it was interesting because it was recapping as it went, was the Good Place podcast. That's that um, was interesting. That was like the Americans yeah, also had a podcast as it was on, which was really oh weird. really very interesting to hear how they filmed it. Other ones that are out right now, let's see. I know there's one about Scrubs called Fake Doctors Best Friends, which I tried to listen to with Zach Braff and Donald. Uh, Faison. It was, I think you told me about this and that it turns out they, they don't even really talk about the show. There's it was a couple of guys shooting the bull. It was almost unlistenable. <laughs> Ironically, yeah. he says in the middle of shooting the bull on his own podcast, there's the office ladies and the weird mm-hmm. one I got into that was Zach to the future. The, 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 um, Saved by the Bell recap, recap podcast featuring the guy who created Zach Morris's trash on Funny or Die and Mark Paul Gosselard. They are, who is Zach Morris? They are the hosts of a podcast recapping Saved by the Bell. Which, That's really funny. Which is pretty funny because apparently Mark Paul Gosler has never watched the show since he made it. And so I wouldn't either. He's like, I don't remember even filming this. I have no idea what happens. And he hates his character and it's kind of funny. Anyway. He, so he's a despicable character. He's kind of seems like he's yeah, not happy with well, his show got canceled recently. Mixed ish. It's off the air now. So maybe he's sad. Oh, I never never saw it. Anyway, folks, Latter-day Saint News is coming at us. I don't even know where to start this week. There's so much. Well, I mean, if we're talking about popular culture, should we just jump right in with the hot topic of the week? Is that Lula, 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 Lula? Yeah. Yeah. Lula, right. So Lula Rowe, as you guys may be familiar with, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the clothing line that was a direct sales opportunity that many people I know, I know at least off the top of my head, two or three people who... Bought into Lula Row and were Me too. sales reps or what do you call it? consultants? Is that, is that what you call and, it? Yeah. And yeah, and, and for context, this documentary explained a lot to me why I feel like I haven't seen that for the past couple of years because I was I couldn't avoid mm-hmm. it four ish years ago. Oh yeah, three to four years ago. Yeah, I saw people all over the place who were selling it. And now I see much less. Right, and so as you also probably know, if you're have your ear to the ground with with the current zeitgeist at all, a documentary dropped a week or a week or so ago on. Uh, Prime, Amazon Prime, um, called Lula Rich. And it was all about the debacle that was the rise and then fall and sort of maybe semi-stabilization of the company LulaRoe. And it's interesting because, so why is that relevant to this show? Well, if you haven't seen the documentary, if you have seen it, it would be very clear. But if you haven't, the founders of LulaRoe are LDS. Yes, they are. And... And it's particularly it's interesting that you know that this is the week that Jeff happened to ask me to host because he didn't know this when uh, when he asked me to be on this week. But the main subject 
Deanne um, Stidham. Nay, uh, she is my mom's yeah. first cousin. Yeah, yeah, she's the yeah, the founder and CEO. Uh, or who knows? When they asked her in in her deposition if she was CEO, she said, "I don't know." I don't know. Uh, but I, we're going to call her the CEO. She's the founder of Lularoe. She's my mom's first cousin. So I don't know her uh, in person because my mom literally has like a hundred cousins. Uh-huh. Um, well, maybe not literally a hundred, but it's it's in the high dozens of cousins. And uh, I, I mean, even if you just look at Deanne's family. She and her twin sister are like the last of like, I want to say about 10 kids. Like bunch. there's a ton of startups. Startups is her middle That's maiden her name. name. Um, and then she and has like 17 kids in real life or something. Absurd. Yeah. Because, yeah. and you know, they've got a yours, mine and our situation with her husband, Mark. And then they also adopted a few kids from Romania. And then they also had some like, you know, like abandoned kids that they took in. Anyway, the point is it's a huge family. I don't know Deanne in person. Uh, if I walked up to her and said, I'm Marlene Gillen's son, she would know exactly who I was. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I don't have a lot of personal interaction with these people, but it was kind of surreal watching because a lot of the photos that they would show, like of establishing shots and about her family and her family history, I, I was like, I know these people. My great grandmother <laughs> was on this documentary about this corrupt MLM company. And I was just like, holy cow. Like it was really I- weird to see my family on display on na- international television. And I experienced a little bit of that too, not my family, but as you and I were texting about this, it's so funny how we both have, I'm, I'm a little more removed from it, but, um, the main character, like I said, Deanne made a name startup. As we were talking about this, I remember I watched, I think it was when I first started watching the first episode and they showed Sam Schultz who features throughout the entire series. And I was like, okay, like I grew up in the same stake as Sam. Like we went to mutual together. Like I've, I've been to many events with Sam Schultz. His father was my Bishop in a YSA ward. And that's when I realized because... Um, Deanne's sister, one of his sisters is the wife of Harry Schultz, who was my bishop. So that's that part of the family. And likewise, her so brother- Are Na- Na- you talking about Nancy? Nancy, Nancy, yes. And then her brother, uh, Frank, was in my home ward growing up. And Frank's daughter's family was also in my ward growing up. And I knew they were related to the um, like the Schultzes in my other part of the stake. But watching this and texting you and stuff and realizing like they are it's all related, all these people. So it's funny to me, not that I know a ton of them well, but it was funny at least seeing Sam Schultz on there and I'm like, yeah, I know that guy. Um, and seeing how they were all involved in this wacky organization. And it makes a lot more sense because I saw many people in that family periphery in the LuLaRoe heyday selling it. And I was like, okay, this 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 tracks now that I'm seeing people who are selling it and, they're, and this is their aunt. I'm seeing a lot of people our age and this was their aunt running well, and they showed from the beginning, like when it was when it was first founded, they just populated sort of the sea level um, of the organization with family members, yeah. with nephew, like a nephew, like Sam, and like with their children, like a couple of their sons ended up being in charge of like big parts of the business. And it was really interesting because like one of the things that they emphasized a few times, especially Sam in his interviews, um, but that like none of them were really qualified to run these department heads in a large organization. And it's one of the things that's surprising about that is that in the documentary they showed, I mean, at one point it was huge. I mean, it was a multi-billion dollar yeah. business. You had Katy and Perry, so, they, you had them renting Angel Stadium and putting on a right? Katy Perry concert for their- They also got Mario Lopez at one point. Do you like I mean, how Sam described, was, I liked how Sam described him as he was uh, more affordable than we expected or he was cheaper than we thought <laughs> it would be to get him. Hey, it all comes back to Save by the Bell. Come on, man. I mean, that's- um, Mario, you gotta, but uh, you gotta, no, but I mean, it was a huge, hugely profitable, huge, like 
you know, cash flow type of a business. And for a bunch of people who didn't really know what they were doing and didn't have a lot of qualifications, I mean, you see, you know, then eventually in the documentary, they show how it starts really falling apart. And part of that is because it was an untenable pyramid scheme, right? But still, like, I don't know. I just like, I'm impressed that these second cousins of mine, I'm like, how did you even build that before it started falling apart? It's crazy how huge it got. And yeah. It was a fascinating watch, the whole thing. Just seeing it. It is. I highly recommend it. You know, my my oldest sister has now watched the whole thing. She watched it first. And then uh, I watched it with Kelsey and Jen and I, my sister, were like telling our siblings, like, you have to watch this so we can talk about it. And my mom wasn't aware of it. So I texted her and I was like, mom, you need to watch this (laughs) documentary about your cousin Deanne. And she's like, "Uh uh-oh. Because this is not new. Like this side of the family, my mom's side, the brown startup whiting side of my family there's a lot of shady and odd it's called entrepreneurial stuff. spirit okay that's it, but it's beyond that like it's beyond that like so it's interesting there was one part uh did you know Lene? um the the ancestor Lene? no i don't think i don't think so okay so I'm not sure she's also southern californian uh she might live in utah now but anyway uh so she, there was a part in the documentary where they talk about how Lene. Uh, helped shuttle women like at one point oh, like sometimes Deanne yeah, okay. would yeah yeah so sometimes apparently Deanne would like approach somebody who's like really high up you know who had a lot of not just sales but had a lot of people had a huge downline them. yeah yeah the huge downline in the in the organization in the pyramid of the organization anyway that she would Deanne would approach women and say you know you really could lose some weight I mean I'm paraphrasing obviously who knows how she said it because she denied it in her interviews. But you know, they basically suggest that those people should lose some weight, and that there was a, she knew a great doctor in Tijuana that could do like a bypass or gastric sleeve or whatever they call it uh, to help them with weight loss. And it's such a weird, shady thing that so then my mom's cousin Lene is shuttling women, and they said at least six or seven of them down to Tijuana to get their this weight loss surgery and then back. And I'm like, why Tijuana? And it just made me think of. Another one of my uh, my mom's uncles, uh, John Ronald Brown, was an infamous doctor. And um, after he lost his license, he started doing his illegal surgeries also in Tijuana. Now, of course, oh good. By this point, he is dead. Like he he got arrested for the last time in 1998. He died in prison in 2010. I want to say, but still, so there's no like direct connection between criminal surgeon uncle on that side of the family and what Deanne and Lene are doing. But still, I'm just like this all feels too familiar and it feels like history is repeating itself in my mom's side of the family. Anyway, all of this is to say it was weird. Right. And it's like, well, and so much of the stuff that they, you know, sometimes they denied things, but other times they admitted it. But when they'd admit it, they, they just kind of acted like there's nothing. Why is this, a this? Like, why, why are you even asking? Like, why is this a topic of interest? And it's just like, it was astounding. It was astounding to watch them and how they reacted. To and them. one section of it that was really interesting, Jenna Reese sort of speaks to this, speaking about kind of the um, the, the the gender roles at play. And yes. you could kind of see it. I know Jana publishes what she publishes and some people don't like it. But um, you could see this in the documentary, primarily like pushing forth this image, essentially almost of like the submissive wife. And there's weird things at play. I mean, there's you could tell a lot of the times that Deanne is very deferential to her husband, like stressing, like you need to praise them and make them feel needed. There were some looter ways that that counsel was given to some of the 
consultants. And it basically more or less keep your husband happy physically and he will let you buy whatever you want in order to have your business. But it goes beyond that where like there's these pressure campaigns to get the men involved in their wife's business and not and I think it's dumb. I think it's multi-sided. Part of that is literally they want men to quit their jobs so like the entire family is dependent, is dependent. on yeah. LuLaRoe to to succeed. But also it seems like they would try to get the men involved and then start deferring to the men. It's almost like use the women to open up, open the door and get it going, but then lean on the men for some reason to get things done. Um, Which is so weird yeah, because like, yeah. and, and they, and they pointed to this like partly because and we'll talk a little bit more in detail about the, the family history of like, there, there's actual a text and a, and a curriculum associated with that from Deanne's mother. And anyway, but also, I mean, they kind of indicated that this was sort of in relate, you know, related to their religion and religious tradition. And so again, these are, these people are LDS. Oh, and they quote the Book of Mormon at company events. Things like right, that. and you know, stuff like, and, and their their company mission statement was like to. Oh, they quoted um, oh, but, McKay. It's the company could, mission statement. You know, there's nothing that'll compensate for the failure in the home. That classic line. Yeah. that's in their mission statement. Yeah, yeah. So there was all sorts of things that were very LDS, but like, I mean, and it was almost as if they were kind of just without saying it, suggesting that this whole like deferring to the man and like getting the man in and like making him like the person that they would talk to instead of the wife, like that was somehow related. And I'm just like, this is not. This is not LDS belief. No. I mean, I, I, it may it, you could argue that in, in for many years it's LDS practice, but in the current day and age, the idea that they would need to rope the husband in so that they could use him as their contact instead of the wife, like where does that come from? That is not an LDS Mormon thing. At least it shouldn't be past you know 1985. Uh, no, but I did have just just last week the sister missionaries texted my wife and to ask if uh, something, and my wife's like, "Well, what do you want to say?" And I said, "You should respond that they should be going through me for all family related communication." She didn't respond with that though. I was kind of disappointed. Come on, Danielle, stop being so woke. It's a shame. Um, <laughs> Dang it, when your wife's so woke. Um, so let's let's go back a little bit and talk a little bit because because uh, yeah, Jana pulls this out and they talked about it a fair bit in the documentary. So Deanne's mother my great aunt Maureen startup. She wrote a book, published a book in 1969 called the secret power of femininity, the art of attracting, winning and keeping the right man. Yes. And so if many of our listeners may be familiar with the book that preceded this called fascinating womanhood, which was, I think, I think Janice says it was uh, published in 65. I think it was 63 though. I don't know. I'm not sure which one of us is right. Anyway, So Helen Andelin writes Fascinating Womanhood. And so the whole premise of this book is uh, making men feel important. And it's like, you know, doing these little things that are just like terribly demeaning to yourself in order to make a man feel good about himself. And so part of that, the idea of the message of the book was this is what men need and what they deserve. But also part of the message of the book is, and this is also how you can get your way that Uh when you need something or want something, you can use your fascinating womanhood or your secret power of femininity to convince the man that you, he, you, that he should let you purchase this thing or that you do this thing. You know, know what's funny. Can I interject for just a second? And I mentioned this before, but it seems, I know you'll say more about this, but I think I recall at some point leading into marriage or something like that, and I know we're not speaking specifically about sex it, or solely about sex, but they, the church stresses like you are not to use sex as either like a reward or a way to like coerce your spouse. And that goes for both genders, by the way. But um, mm-hmm. that's like that. 
I don't I don't know where that's written down, but I remember learning this either in a temple recommend class or it might have just been as much as talking to a bishop prior to a wedding or something like that. But that is something we're kind of taught in this day and age. So it's funny to look back before this, and it's more use your feminine wiles to get your way, because that's the way Well, and it's not even about like sex I, necessarily. Yes, yes, I know. So so like I remember well, that's uh, all I my think. mom telling me so so this is a funny quirk about my family beyond what I've already talked about. But uh, my dad actually dated my mom's older sister before he dated my mom. Uh, so Fair that was always a t- topic of interesting conversation when that, was when that, that something they could laugh about later on or was it like for, yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, definitely later on, but uh, you know, it caused some tension, especially right around the time when my dad and mom first started dating. And even when they got married, like Laurie might've been, it took her a while to get on board and be okay with, the whole history. Yeah. But I remember my mom, my parents telling stories about how Laurie would kind of try and use some of these like fascinating women with tactics. Like they were getting ready, setting up for a dance and, Oh, this punch bowl is so heavy. Steve, will you lift it? Cause you're so strong, like that kind of stuff. And so it's like, you know, Laurie, my Laurie wasn't using sex per se, yeah, yeah, but she was using, trying to use some sort of like weird reverse psychology or whatever you want to call it to convince my dad that she saw him as a strong, powerful man and that she needed him to, you know, help her get by in this time of her life. And that eventually, you know, that would be able to come back to her that when she, like when she wanted something or whatever, then she could be like, Oh, you're so strong. So you could do this for me, you know, kind of thing, whatever. Um, the point I wanted to make though. And so they talk about this book and then in Jana talks about how there's a connection because so Maureen wrote this book in 69. Uh, Helen Andelin wrote this other book in 65 and the two of them are quite similar. Uh, and it's really interesting that Maureen and Helen Andelin are actually first cousins. Uh-huh. So, so Helen Andelin, Bar- her maiden name is Barry, and that's another line that I'm very much connected to, the Barrys. Uh, she, she writes this book, and, and Jana Reese says that she mostly based it off of a series of pamphlets that were published in the 1920s. Um, and kind of, not necessarily plagiarized, but gathered the ideas of this and consolidated it into the book. And one of the reasons she publishes this in the mid-60s is because of the sexual revolution, because women are becoming more liberated and like, we don't need men and we can do things ourselves. And Helen Andelin sees this as a kind of a crisis of femininity, publishes her book to kind of like get, try to, you know, restore some of this traditional feminine role type stuff. Anyway, so then what's interesting is uh, there's a curriculum associated with fascinating womanhood. Like women were encouraged to buy the book and then almost like a Tupperware party, invite other women into their home and teach principles from the book and kind of spread the gospel and then encourage them to buy the book and then to have, and go organize their own parties in their home and teach women these principles. They were trying to like spread this much like you would do missionary work in the church. So my aunt, my great aunt Maureen, Helen's cousin, she was totally on board. And I'm getting this now from my mom. This is not from uh, um, Jana's, Jana Reese's article. So my mom talked about how uh, Maureen was a very big advocate of this. Uh, they mentioned, I think, very briefly that uh, Maureen's startup uh, was a big, I don't know if they talked about this. In the, she was a big anti-ERA person. Uh-huh. Um, and it was funny because Deanne, at one point in the documentary, talks about how her mom fought for women's rights. And many would argue that Maureen fought against women's rights because she was so vehemently against the ERA. Yeah. Anyway, so Maureen would do these fascinating womanhood parties and seminars. My my sister Jen remembers being at a family reunion when she was like 
a young teen and, and going to the, the fascinating womanhood, secret power of femininity thing with Aunt Maureen so she could learn. It, so, I mean, it's, it's nuts. This is the 80s by the time Jen's getting this. Uh, anyway, so my point is, Janice says, even though the two books are very similar, it's not, she says it's unlikely or, you know, she doesn't think that Maureen plagiarized from Helen. She's like, it's likely that she just used the same source material, those 1920s pamphlets. I will tell you as an insider, that is not correct. She did indeed (laughs) plagiarize her own first cousin's book. And uh, it was funny because my aunt Laurie, she actually typed up the manuscript for Maureen for the secret power of femininity. Oh, wow. And uh, she got paid uh, by when she got married. Instead of getting eight settings of China, Maureen bought her 16 settings of China. That was her payment for typing up the manuscript. And my mom said she remembers after Laurie finished typing it up. And Laurie had read Fascinating Womanhood. As I said, she had used it on my dad. Um, (laughs) After she had finished typing it up, she comes to my mom and says, you know, Aunt Maureen's book is really similar to Helen's. And uh, they ended up, and then in the Jan Reese article, she does note that they ended up having a falling out and kind of going their separate ways. That falling out was over the the, the issue of plagiarism. Um, so yeah. Anyway, that's just a little note. I guess a big note, side note into the history of this. But I just want to palace. It, it's all re- it's all relevant because yeah. this is part of LDS culture. Yeah. Like in the 1960s and 70s, you couldn't get away from fascinating womanhood or its lesser counterpart, the secret power of femininity. Um, Anyway, and it, and this, it's just a sort of fascinating thing. My my, I could go on. We could have a few. We could have old podcast series about the weird quirks of my extended family on my mom's side. I would love. Anyway, I, w- yeah, I would love that they, more than anything else. That'd be awesome. Thank you for letting me give you a small glimpse into the fascinating world of my mom's family. You're welcome. Uh, so anyway, w- watch it. Folks. You should definitely uh, yeah. watch it. Yeah, it's it's yeah. If you're worried about content, it's like mostly okay. I think near the end of it, yeah. it kind of shocks you with a couple of f bombs and stuff. But across four episodes, it's pretty. I will say though that those f bombs appeared to be very genuine reactions well, uh, from the people who well, were being uh, interviewed. Well, <laughs> all right, yeah. I'm gonna hit you with a handful of different temple news real fast. Uh, the church broke ground on the Phnom Penh Cambodia temple. Very cool that we'll get a temple in Cambodia. Love the design they're they're incorporating for it. Quite reflective of the area, something the church has been trying to do recently. Uh, temples typically take roughly three years from groundbreaking to dedication. So hopefully this bad boy will be up and running uh, sometime in you know mid to late uh, 2024. And hopefully COVID won't be a thing by then. Or And uh, that's super duper cool. Also... Do, do check out the pictures. Um our listeners, because, you know, this is not a visual medium yeah. unless, again, if you're watching on YouTube, but go to the links and check out because it is very cool. It's, and it's interesting how, like you said, we've been doing this more with temples lately. And the, the base is your kind of typical series of boxes you know, that yeah. form, like, the, you know, what's going to be the inside the temple. But the spires uh, have this very cool Southeast Asian look to them. And, and I like how, yeah, the church is trying to acknowledge like local architecture and local tradition. That is true. I'm looking at it right now. If you, I took my thumb on it. If you were to get rid of the spire and look at just the base, yeah, that's kind of interchangeable. No, it? most temples are a series of boxes or like the Seattle temple, one giant box. <laughs> but like, 
but and then but the way you get the the personality is kind of the columns on the outside yeah. or the shape of the windows and and then always the spires so yeah the, i like the spires it looks kind of like a, a cool old cambodian style thing that you'd see like in a tomb raider movie or something like that uh speaking of boxy temples because north american temples i feel like get the short shrift sometimes when it comes to architecture they're they're beautiful buildings but they're not architecturally adventurous shall we say and a big deal right now, we have an open house underway for the Pocatello, Idaho Temple. This is particularly a big deal because we haven't had an open house since COVID. So this is the first one since that happened. Um, the, t- the, f- the next temple that was in line to be dedicated was the Rio de Janeiro Temple. It was supposed to get dedicated like right after COVID started. So that poor thing's just been sitting there. And because Brazil uh, you know, is having some struggles, to say the least, with COVID, who knows when that'll happen. But up in Idaho, which also has no issues whatsoever with COVID, they're golden. East, as you said, uh. Eastern Idaho, they've got covid free barbers everywhere the uh down there in pocatello they got the temple the temple's fine looking it is kind of that just kind of it almost looks like a shrunken mount timpanogos when i see this main this first picture in this article i get that vibe it's it's okay size but it's not as big as some of those humongous utah temples but this article is kind of cool because it's about a latter-day saint who toured the pocatello temple with no a non-latter sorry did i say latter-day saint so a not a member of the church who got to experience touring the temple with Elder Stevenson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. I believe it was East Idaho News reporter Kalama Hines. Is that correct? She is the one who went mm-hmm. through. So it's like her own. It's her so. own story. She enjoyed it. I, th- I think it was all positive overall. I think it's great for us to do this kind of outreach and, and such. And uh, it's a beautiful building. I'm excited for the people of Pocatello. Good for them. Um, you said Kalama, and you said she. I, I clicked on the profile picture, and I think I believe Kalama is a man. Oh, I'm sorry. A goatee. Um, oh, see, I thought so it was. I, so Kalama was, sounds like a feminine name because because we speak Spanish. Oh, that's Elder Stevenson. That's Elder Stevenson's wife, Lessa, Lisa. I'm sorry. So based on the pictures, I thought they were referring to that her as the. Uh, yeah, no, Kalama is a man, and he is the reporter. Yeah, who's Kalama is a man. Perspective. Name of this yes. episode. Is he the one wearing that, what looks like the flag of Hawaii on a mask behind Elder Stevenson in that one picture? Uh, it could be, yes. Yeah, I think that's, that is he. Yes. Anyway, it's always cool. And I'm particularly excited about this because still many, many, many months from now, we will have the open house for the Washington, D.C. temple. It'll come back. Yep. Well, be- I'm excited for the Pocatello. That, this is, Pocatello is about a 40-minute drive for me. And uh, my mother-in-law was uh, very enterprising and she uh, organized us all and found a weekend that worked for everybody and we she got us all tickets to go to the open house with uh you know my brother and sister-in-law and their children and so it'll be fun i that's to me like i get less excited at least just for me about going to an open house for a temple because it's sort of like yeah i mean i I've, I've seen the inside of a temple, you know, <laughs> and, right. and it's cool because every temple is different. And that's another thing, you know, it's a box on the outside, but then on the inside, they do try to do uh, reflect things to, to make it regional. And Kalama, mm-hmm. the, this reporter does note like the repetitive, repetitive pattern of like a local, like the state flower that's found like carved into things. And he was really impressed with like just how personal and local they tried to make it. Anyway, to me, what I'm looking forward to is going through with these nephews of mine because None of them are old enough to have been through a local temple open house. So this will, for them, for, you know, these nephews are between five and 10. And it'd be really fun to see them, see the inside of the temple for the first time, be able to talk with them about it. So looking forward to that. I remember uh, when we went to the Philadelphia open house in 2016, it was fun because we had our, our one son was just over a year old at the time. 
mm-hmm. and it was like he doesn't remember it or anything. My biggest fear was that he would be like irreverent, even though a temple open house can still be louder than you expect a, a temple to be when you're walking around. Because of all, and in Philadelphia, especially so, because it's wood floors throughout. Like they've got carpeting as you go into some of the ordinance rooms, but the staircases that go up on all the ends of it are just uncarpeted wood. And so it is during an open house, you just hear thunder of people walking up and down throughout, which was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. So my big fear, he like ran off in the baptistry or something like that. We had to go grab him. That was fun. Uh, another news, very, very personal for me, Jared, once again, we're always reporting there's many temples in the church, but there's only one Yorba Linda, California temple, my homeland. And, uh, Very excited because this week the church released the rendering for said temple. And what I'm seriously the happiest about is it actually looks kind of cool. I mean, we were talking about temples being boxes that don't, especially in North America, they kind of follow the same old, same old stuff. Um, And they announced three other temple renderings in the same release. The one in Grand Junction, Colorado, which kind of just looks, it kind of looks like the Sacramento temple, but tweaked a bit. The Elko, Nevada temple, which is just kind of, you know, modern with the spire and the one in Burley, Idaho, also modern, also cool, totally cool, but kind of what you'd expect for a lot of temples in North America. The Yorba Linda one, on the other hand, for reasons that I'm pleased with, I don't know what went into it, very much follows California Spanish style, even more so than the Newport Beach temple. The Newport Beach follows that mission mm-hmm. style, but it's all right. salmon colored. This, you've got Spanish, red Spanish tile throughout, even up on the cupola on the top. Um, yeah. Interesting. And also a peaked roof. Uh, often these boxy yeah. North American temples just have like the flat roof thing. And I like that it's a peaked roof and you can see the si- you know, the slope of it with the tiles on and, it. It's, and you it can looks- tell it's basically going to follow the same floor plan as as like the Grand Junction Temple or even the one in Elko. Like you can tell they're the same general idea. But I love that whoever decided let's make this one look different. It's, it's got Baroque features, you can, some of the flair to it. So uh, yeah. I'm just pleased with that. That my little, whenever that thing gets completed, it's got... Kind of cool. I saw some detractors. I'm in some Facebook groups about this temple. Most people are happy with it, but I could understand the argument if some folks said, this looks like it's a library, which if, yeah. if you've been to Southern California, you could easily see this being any number of of faux Spanish like municipal buildings that dot the landscape, especially in like master plan cities. You could easily see a city hall or a library or something kind of being built in that same way, like a nice modern twist on Spanish architecture. But uh, Still, it's cool. I mean, it's amazing how quickly they've moved on so many of these temples that were announced in April. And I'm excited. I'm sure the spire is taller than what a local library would have. One would hope. It is missing a Moroni, which... Yeah, that would help it stand out a little more. Um, and it's, it's on a very busy yeah. street, too, where it's in terms of standing out. It's in an area um, already zoned for religious buildings. So there is a Danish Lutheran church. It's huge right across the street. There's a Baptist church. Uh, I think there's a Presbyterian church right up there. They're all, and there's a big like evangelical thing up the way too. It's kind of, it's this whole little church boulevard. It's kind of cool. So it is pretty cool looking, you know, and you were comparing it to like the sort of more staid generic look to an Elko temple. They're still great. I know, I know, I know. I mean, hopefully our listeners know us well enough to now to know that we're not detracting from any temple. We're just comparing architectural styles here. And like with Yorba Linda, I mean, in that whole area, yeah, you have like a traditional architecture because of Spanish missions and such. And I'm trying to figure out what you would use for like traditional local architecture for Elko, Nevada. I, I mean, other than yeah. trying to make it look like an old timey saloon or something like that, like how do you reflect the history and architectural richness of Elko, Nevada? I just, 
And that is something they run into. And even not to knock Burley, Idaho or anywhere else, right? But that is something to bear in mind. This is probably my favorite temple since I just sent you a link, Joe. I don't know if you can see our chat, Jared. Yeah, I just clicked but on the, it. Uh, the Pueblo, Mexico temple, which is oh, yeah, that's beautiful. pretty cool looking. I can dig that one. The other one that jumps out at me is the Tucson temple, which has been dedicated for a few years. The Tucson temple almost looks Florentine in its architecture. And it's... Uh, yeah, kind of cool. I like it when they swing for Tucson something. has a really yeah interesting. It's a cool looking town uh, architecturally, you know, its traditions and like yeah, this Pueblo one. Yeah, it incorporates a lot of that uh, Spanish colonial yeah. style. But yeah, like the cupola looks much more old country European than you expect to see. It, it's a cool look. Yeah, I agree. So good on you, church. Good on you, making them neat. Good on you, church architects. Or I would love to talk to any of you. I know. I know these people who design temples aren't even allowed to really speak publicly about it. But seriously, if you know anyone who is, I would love, 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 love to to have a discussion about that. I will say, just to going back to my family, lest you think every I only have bad things to say about my mom's side of the family. Her uncle Jim, who was uh, so this so this is so you know so Deanne's mother is Maureen, Maureen's sister is Maydine. Her her so then her husband Jim. So this is again so my great uncle, my mom's uncle. He was a contractor uh, and a builder who he always bid on temples. He tried to, he never built a temple. He always tried to, he always bid on them. Oh, yeah. uh, which is, so, which is a whole other he, funny thing. I bet people don't, we don't think about temples being like any oh, other. Oh yeah. So like, so he never there's... designed anything, but he was a, a great, very skilled builder. What he did build uh, was the North Visitors Center at the on Temple Square. Oh, sorry, buddy. That's uh... I know it was, that's I was really sad when they announced that it was being torn down. First of all, because I have a lot of good memories there. Sure. We, anytime we went to Utah on a family vacation, we would go to the North Visitor Center and go look at the Christus and get pictures in front of it. So I have a lot of good childhood memories. But also because I mean that's part of my family legacy. My mom's uncle built that building. Yeah. Anyway, th- that's just a little another aside. And again, I don't want anybody to think, oh, Jared. Jared just thinks his mom's side of the family is all nuts. They're not all nuts. Some of them are, are great. We're great builders, and uh, you know. Anyway, you just made me think about that when you were saying, "Hey, let's get a temple architect on the show here." I would love it. And I was like, "Well, I, I did know a a contractor who built for the church." Anyway, he died a few years ago, so we can't get that. Him doesn't show. Uh, but it, that would have been cool. Sorry to hear that. Well, I'll jump in on another one here real quick. The yeah, Tabernacle Choir has a plan to come back. They were supposed to resume rehearsals back in August, and they decided to put a pause on that as they assessed the situation. It's funny because they announced the pause. Then within that next week was when they announced Mike Levitt was the new president of the choir, um, which I'm assuming was in the works before that point. Before, so I don't know if he preemptively said, I know you haven't announced it yet, but can we put a, halt, a hold on the plans so I don't come into a mess? Might have. I don't know. But uh, And Mike Levitt, of course, was governor of Utah. He was also the secretary of health and human services under George W. Bush. And now he gets this really cool thing where he gets to lead the choir. And I've never seen so much press for a, a Tabcats president in my life. They've had presidents our whole lives. There's always been a president of the choir. But I see so much coverage for Mike Levitt being the president, which is fine. That's well, because you know, he's shaking things up. He called he called counselors. That's yeah. never happened before. And now he's, I mean, I think in a way, and I don't, and I mean this in like, in the least pejorative sense possible, <laughs> but he's acting like a governor. He's acting like somebody who, who yeah. has the experience of governing and he's like, here's our plan. Here's the, you know, how, here's how it's going to be executed. Like, I don't know. I kind of like it. I like that he's bringing his leadership experience to say, we need to, you know, take the reins and try and figure out the future of how this choir is going to operate. And I don't know. I think it's refreshing to, to have this much publicity about it and to say, here's how it's going to go. And I don't know. No, it's like good it. because general conferences right upon us and 
they haven't spoken a ton about the choir's plans for it. We know conference will be in the conference center main hall once more, even though there will be no attendees. And right. I imagine the whole reason they did that is because they wanted to, at the very least, have live music from the Tabernacle Choir again. Because without, if you're not going to have the yes. choir, why bo- why bother being in the room other than just the... It'll be really interesting to see because we're used to seeing, you know, these really packed in sections of the choir, you know, right underneath the organ pipes. And it'll be interesting to see if they socially distance them and have this like sparsely populated choir spread throughout that the is, choir seats. And that's part of the plan. There's a seven layer plan as as President Levitt describes it. I kind of like, I like the analogy he uses. He's like, it's basically kind of like Swiss cheese. If you take a bunch of slices, yes, each slice has a hole. It has a weakness, so to speak. But if you lay different slices on top of one another, they will continue to cover the different holes and hopefully as one functional plump chunk of cheese, you know, prevents things from getting I, through, which I, I liked your likening to seven layer burrito better. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I also rest in peace. Taco Bell, seven layer burrito. You are my favorite thing on the menu. Uh-huh. I also couldn't help but think also, um, I don't like Taco Bell, but they announced Del Taco is coming to Virginia and I am, I am ready. My body is ready. Even though it's going to be in like Newport news, but whatever. You're like, I don't like this garbage food. I like this other. It's like, if you food. need fast Mexican food, del- taco is vastly superior to Taco Bell. If you want that yeah. level of it, okay, I'm not. I'm not going to bat for it being the greatest. I've had both, and I'm just like, eh, garbage food is garbage well, food. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it just true. tastes great. So, so we've got seven layers here. One of which is the distancing, but yeah, the first one is vaccinations. This is a big deal, though. They're, they're requiring performers to get vaccinated. If they, if you're not unable to do so, ineligible, you'll just be granted special leave until it's safe for you to come back. Uh, but it sounds like, I mean, it doesn't say this specifically, but then it sounds like if you say no, I won't get vaccinated. Like it sounds like you won't, you'll be invited to leave. The yeah, choir. I'm assuming that's the case. And then, of course, they'll have regular screenings. And if you if you are even living in an immunocompromised household, you'll be granted special leave. Uh, every performer must also be tested prior to every performance. And then the social distancing element, which I assume requires roughly 300 people. I'm assuming this means they'll scatter them across the the rostrum as opposed to just packing so 100, 150 people yeah. like in the middle instead. So I'm guessing that's what they'll do. They'll have to wear face coverings anytime they're not actively rehearsing or singing, which makes sense. Um, self-reporting. Even if your kids have sniffles, you, you're supposed to report it to the choir. And ventilation. They're only going to have performances in the conference center because the conference center has superior HVAC compared to somewhere like the Tabernacle itself. Well, and also, I mean, if you think about it, not just HVAC. I mean, it's huge. Like, not only is yeah, exactly. I mean, they can spread out because those choir, that choir section is very big. But then also, like, yeah, I mean, there's so much open air. I mean, I remember, you know, seeing the diagram when they first opened the 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 conference center, and they showed, they demonstrated on the diagram that you could fit a full 737 inside that meeting hall of the conference center. So there's tons of space, and it's well ventilated. So as the seventh layer of the burrito, it seems like it's it's, it's it good. makes a lot of sense. I mean, even with them singing in there with church leadership up there, there's still such a space even between where the choir sits and anybody right. who's vulnerable. And as we see, the church leadership is also all wearing masks and they're spread out. And oh. you know that might be another reason why they're doing it in the conference center is because not everybody would have to sit on the stand. You could also have people spread out even further and have some people out, you know, on the floor, you know, and not have to have everybody all up there together on the stand. Yeah. So it's cool. And the the nice thing is Levitt um, reiterated that if this plan doesn't bear good fruit, then he's like, then we'll pause it. Then we'll pause rehearsals and performances again until we figure it out. I like that he's being 
totally straight, straight up about it. Like if this doesn't work, then okay, we're back to square one. And yeah, it's very pragmatic yeah. and I like it. Yeah, so it's cool. You know, what's interesting to me is that what we're doing right now, this little bit of speculation about the choir and whether or not they're going to sing at general conference. This is the most general conference speculation I've heard at all. It's like for this <laughs> session, like you think about the last three or four years and how much Just, general conference speculation, we love like, yeah. oh, they're going to announce this yeah. and we're going to go to that or, you know, whatever. And I haven't heard any of that this time around. And so like, and what we're doing right here, like maybe the choir will sing. Like that's the hot, hottest speculation we've got, Jeff. That's pretty much fair. I mean, we're just happy to be having conference given that's this true. is our fourth COVID conference we're coming in on, if we can believe that. That's, uh, folks, make a goal collectively as a church to have regular general conference next April. Come on. Well, I'm going to go out and throw out just, just for the sake of having a speculation – uh, I'm going to go ahead and throw out that maybe they'll redefine hot drinks and all of us hot chocolate living saints will no longer be able to to drink cocoa because they're oh. going to be like, hey, it's a hot drink. Oh, it's over. Don't do it, say man. Goodbye. Say, goodbye to your, say goodbye to your hot cider. No, I still have like $40 to Starbucks that my boss got me two Christmases <laughs> ago. It's still in my wallet. I need to. I need it. All right. So I actually don't think they're going to do this, but it does bring us to an interesting article that appeared on By Common Consent. Sam Brunson, who I think always writes very thoughtful and yeah, like, interesting like things. And, and, he, and he doesn't only blog on co- by Commons Consent. He writes in other places, too. I believe Sam Brunson, I believe, he's like a tax lawyer or in a, in a tax – like a, he teaches tax, tax law. law. Yeah. 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 So he's really well-educated, well-read person. Anyway, he did a little research and trying to figure out and, – and, and he makes it very clear. He doesn't say this till the very end of the article, but he's like, I'm not trying here to make any kind of justification for – coffee and tea being allowed as part of the word of wisdom. And he says like, they are obviously not, but what he was interested in is if you go back to the 1830s, when the word of wisdom was received, like, you know, Joseph Smith, the Lord through Joseph Smith just throws out the term hot drinks as if we all know what he's talking about. And he even points out though, like even in that early period, there was a little, there was questions among the quorum of the 12 and disagreement about what, what was the definition of a hot drink. Um, and so anyway, it's an, it was just an interesting article worth checking out. He does some cool historical digging to find contemporary documents where other people who are talking about health also use talk about hot drinks and some of the theories that yeah. they had at the time that like it was bad for your teeth because the temperature would like weaken the materials and that you would have tooth issues or it's same thing like it could weaken the your stomach and your stomach could end up turning into a different shape, never to be recovered because of the, the temperature of the, of the drinks that you were consuming. Funny because they don't say anything about soup or stew. You know, it's just hot drinks. drinks. Uh, anyway, I don't know that there's much really to discuss about this other than the fact that Sam did some cool – he used a cool feature of Google that I was not aware of where he was able to specify his search – to have to give him results confined to a certain time period. Yeah, yeah, and, he, yeah. and he made that time period 1800 to 1850 – and found everything that he could where people were talking about hot drinks as related to That's, health and and personal wellness. And it was, it was cool. Would you like cool me to search. teach you all about how to do Boolean searches, Jared? I can really... I do know about Boolean Well, searches. that's what Google is. Uh, but you, yeah, you can get in the weeds with that stuff. You can set specific terms, date windows, all kinds of fun stuff. It's a, Yeah. I, I mean, I remember learning about Boolean searches um, in like my freshman writing class at BYU, but uh, I'd never heard of Google Ngram search. Like that was, yeah. I guess it's a souped up way to do a specific Boolean, use specific Boolean search terms. I've tried using some Boolean search terms in just normal Google and it often doesn't know what you're trying to do. So I think you, I think 
I, my understanding is that maybe that's what Google Ngram is for. It like allows you to do those little more, little bit more sophisticated, refined searches. Yeah. Anyway, check it out. It's called "On Hot Drinks" by Sam Brunson. We'll link to found it. at the By Consen- Common Consent blog. Now let's hit up a quick things in the legal arena. If you've been following the uh, the beautiful Huntsman lawsuit from Mister, uh, which Huntsman are we talking about? I'm forgetting the name. James Huntsman. You know, we, we talked about this for a few months. James Huntsman has been suing the church, alleging fraud, that the church used his tithing money to build places like City Creek, and that essentially that's not what they said they would do, and he wants his tithing money back, and it's it's always kind of seemed like a sham lawsuit just to get attention. Anyway, the judge overseeing the lawsuit threw the thing out, and he basically said his main point was that like you can't prove that the church was disingenuous with the way it used your money whether or not to build City Creek. That's just not there. At the same time, though, he also rejected the church's assertion that the First Amendment should have barred Huntsman from even bringing the lawsuit. That's what the church's lawyers were arguing. Yeah, the church, I mean, we've talked about angle. this on the show yeah. before, but like the church is really trying to like set its own terms about what religious freedom means. Yeah. And uh, sometimes I'm like, yeah, those are good points. And other times I'm like, ah, I think the lawyers might have something to say about that, you know. And this is a case where a judge was like, "No, that's not what freedom. That's not what the First Amendment does." Yeah. You know. Yeah. So that happened, and also now, um, Boy Scouts of America. Well, sorry, the church is going to pay our church two hundred and fifty million dollars into a fund for Boy Scout sexual abuse victims. Of course, the the church was the largest patron of scouting while we were still in it for you know hundred odd years until we left. What's it? Has it even been two years since we bailed on scouting at this point? Maybe just about. About. Um, it was it was pre-pandemic, I want to say. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was right before that, I think. So that's the main gist of it, right there, though. So the total fund will have more than a billion dollars from its from Boy Scouts' primary insurer, but that's still a quarter billion dollars from the church. That's that is not small potatoes at all. I know, but what's interesting is that a lot of people are complaining, like victims of. Um, of sexual abuse and people who are involved in the lawsuit are saying like, this isn't enough. Like there should be more. And they, cause there's like, I think like 60,000 total claimants who are saying that they got and not just not from the church alone. I don't think, I think this is on a whole people who are um, uh, filing complaints against, uh, uh, and alleging sexual abuse while they were, you know, kids in the boy Scouts of America anyway, you know, so there's like 60,000 and they're saying like, a billion dollars seems like a lot, but there needs to be more because, um, you know, anyway, I just thought it was interesting because, yeah, you and I are going, whoa, this, this is a lot of money. And the claimants are like, nope, no, it's not more. It's a it's a it's a sticky wicket, as they would say on an old timey <laughs> movie. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know where to go from there, Jeff. You kind of that's what a downer. Let, let, let's go. Let's continue with, um, I guess. We got a couple. I mean, we don't have to do them all, but we've got a couple other solid ones this week. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I, I don't even know how to segue to this, so we're just going to do the apropos of nothing. There it is. That's uh, what I wanted. Good man. Uh, so Christina Rossetti, uh, who's a very interesting. I, I highly recommend following her on Twitter. She's a Catholic scholar whose main area of focus is FLDS church stuff, like members and uh, plural marriage issues like that. Hmm. And uh, very, very, very smart individual, uh, like worth following on Twitter. So she recently published an article uh, on religiondispatches.org uh, called Truth is the Pearl of Great Price. And she's talking all about how there has basically been, become an offshoot of our church 
which takes beliefs about Mormonism and you know foundations set up by Joseph Smith and then brings into them QAnon conspiracies and canonizes the whole thing to like an actual belief system. And also like, and if, if any of our listeners are, are um, familiar with Denver Snuffer and the Snufferite, uh, you know, small following that he got a few years ago, he also laid some of the foundations for this. Anyway, we don't need to describe this entire thing, but again, it's a, it's an article worth checking out as, and especially from a, a really brilliant um, religious studies scholar like this kind of, Really, she does a good job. She's a good writer of putting it all together and showing how, you know, foundational LDS apocalyptic beliefs combined with current oddball conspiracy theories and then mix it in with all the other like weird little traditions we get from schismatic offshoots of the church, which break off, you know, all the time. And we get this really interesting QAnon Mormon soup. Uh, the biggest thing, so curious, because like yeah. just just to really pique your curiosity, in case you you're you're still not convinced that you should read this, here is a a, a quote from the article. I believe this is not Christina Rosetta talking. This, she's quoting someone else. I believe that Brigham Young was a was a Rothschild agent <laughs> said to assassinate the Smith family and gain control over the church. The cabal have taken over every major religious institutions. The Book of Mormon warns against this, but modern day prophets don't even talk about it and also cover up a lot of what Joseph Smith taught. So it's interesting because you can see right in that statement, first of all, it's cuckoo bananas. I think that's the technical term. But also there's like some a healthy dose of anti-Semitism peppered in here with the, you know, the whole Rothschild mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm. Um and then, yeah, the, the conspiracy mindset that, like, there, there's a worldwide cabal that has taken over control of every major religion. Like, any, yeah. So, but then you, but you then see this related directly to modern QAnon beliefs about the nefarious sex ring, uh, child prostitution ring that has taken over the government and that, you know, we're waiting for Q to arise and bring about the, you know, what do, you, do they call it? Like, you know, eviction of the deep state and you know, restoring true governance to America. Rapture. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Rapture. Yeah. So anyway, crazy, weird stuff, hard to separate because people are, are marrying it to our religious beliefs. But, so. but give it a read people. Give it a read. Yeah. It's super interesting. Um, other random news. President Nelson launches a Spanish Instagram account. Okay. I can talk there at the end, but president Nelson now has a Spanish Instagram account. It's the first time, um, a senior church leader has had a Spanish-only social media account, implying that there have been senior church leaders that have dabbled in Spanish at some point or another. And I bet that Suarez can't help himself. He's probably all over the place, falling Portugues, and who knows? So it's, that's really all there is to it. I mean, it makes sense, obviously. We have huge membership in, in Spanish. I wouldn't be surprised if we actually saw one of these created in um Portuguese at some point to reach the Brazilian saints and of course the Portuguese saints and the Mozambican saints amongst others. But uh, good times. That's all. It's great. I mean, President Nelson. Well, another, Spanish. another thing that's great about it. Yeah. I was going to say like the article points out that, you know, President Nelson, who knows how conversant he is in Spanish, but he has made an effort to learn the language and tried to be able to speak it well. And so like he, you know, he, that's a way for him to try and connect with, a, a significant portion, a demographic portion of the membership of the church is to try and speak and understand their language and now to open an Instagram account where he can 
speak out to them more directly through social media. And, and I like this a lot. I mean, it's I I have concerns, honestly, sometimes as a member of our church, even as we try to become more pluralistic and we and we have more and more people in higher leadership positions from around the world as the church grows and expands its global footprint, which is all great. But so much is still dependent on English and on people, you know, embracing these North American leaders who are doing things in English. So I think it's awesome. I love the idea of just saying well, we're going to try to bring the church to you and not make you feel like it's an English first church and then everything's translated towards you. Like we can actually just be with you in your native sense. If, I mean, this goes back to how I wish they would make temple films back when they were still not not slideshow-ish. That's one of the benefits of the whole slideshow thing, I guess, right? But I always wish they would have actually filmed that some in Spanish, just straight up, full-blown. Yeah, in Portuguese. Spanish sure. and Portuguese, actual actors speaking that language, no dubbing. I think that was justified because I'm I'm in a position to feel these things, right? But uh, so. Of course, and and I'm 100% agree with you, and I believe I have stated this at some point before on this show, but I, I'm re- it made me very sad. I, I, I was actually very excited when we had that one session, that one conference. Oh, when a, we did the know, native languages? Like, yeah, yeah, where they let the, nat- the, the speakers speak in their native languages, and for English speakers or whoever else, we got the dub. We got the voiceover interpreter or a translator, uh, and I think that was so great because we, had, like, I believe – uh, one of the general authorities spoke, gave a talk in like Mandarin Chinese, yeah. or Cantonese, can't remember which one. Yeah. There was at least one in Spanish because I remember listening after a conference was over, finding the the Spanish um, original and listening to that because I was like, hey, I can understand this. And anyway, I, I was so sad when they announced that, that they weren't going to do that again because I think that is a good way to address what you're talking about. This is a worldwide church and it's not like better learn English in order to function in the church. And, you know, it's all English centric. That's not just English. If you're going to be, if you're a general authority, you have to become a U.S. citizen too, eventually. That's, that's another part of it. Really? I I think it's required. I mean, like Uchtdorf is a U.S. citizen, as we know. And I, I think it's like a requirement. I don't know if he just did it. Is Ella Suarez then? It probably is. I don't know. But I, I I want to be clear though. I don't know if it's a requirement or if it's a practicality where like Dieter Uchtdorf said, my life's going to be a lot easier if I'm a U.S. citizen, given what I have to do now for the rest of my life. Living in Salt Lake City. You know, living here, traveling the world. I mean, not that a a German passport probably gets you in more doors than a U.S. one at this point, but still, um, I don't know. So anyways. Depends on where you go. Depends on where you go. Uh, real quick, uh, we don't, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on this, but the church, uh, at least in the North America West area. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I'm not going to click on the article right now to make sure I'm saying it right. But in California, Oregon, and Washington, the area presidency has made it very clear to stake presidents and bishops. They they are not to sign religious exemptions for people who want to get out of getting vaccines on a religious basis. And it's interesting because the, you know, the, the article points out that there's two at least two main reasons why they're not allowed to. And first is it's not one of our beliefs, like the, nowhere in the canon or in our, you know, published materials are you going to find a teaching that we are opposed to vaccination. If anything, you find the, opposite. the second. <laughs> exactly. And that was point number two, Sorry. that quite the opposite. Our prophet has repeatedly encouraged people to get the vaccine for COVID. And also we, we have statements in our handbooks that encourage uh, people getting vaccines for their children, preventing preventable diseases, et cetera. And then the other big thing, and the article only really briefly touched on this, is that really, if, if a bishop or a stake president were to sign such a thing, they would be in danger of committing perjury, that this is not truthful. And if and if somebody was were to legally challenge whether or not this was truly a religious exempt, exemption, 
that a bishop or stake president who signs such a thing, and by implication, then the church as a whole could be under legal fire for bearing false witness and perjuring itself. So those of you who are vaccine resistant or hesitant and hoping that your bishop or stake president, and again, the article only talks about this applying to that area, you know, that this coming uh, statement from the area presidency that covers California, Oregon, and Washington. But my assumption is that this same principle would apply to the church as a whole. And if we haven't received such a statement from the first presidency yet, at some point they will release it as it becomes more and more of an issue. Anyway, in case you were curious, no, the church will not grant you a religious exemption from the COVID-19 vaccine. Any of that. And as a side note, this is one of these things that I like that you get from the Trib compared to Deseret News. Deseret News does have a good article essentially about what you need to know about religious exemptions for vaccine mandates mm-hmm. that came out last week that talks about the history of that, what's involved, the criteria, stressing the church's position on vaccines. I mean, it's not, but they don't go out of their way to cover what the Trib did and be like, yeah, the church isn't going to help you in California. If you think that's your jam, right. that's that's not going to And again, like my assumption is that it's not, I would assume that it's not just California. Like the church isn't going to yeah, do that, this Yeah, that area. Anyway. And I, th- I think it's, yeah, it, uh, it portends action elsewhere in case it comes to that. And Trib, web people, we got to speak about your URLs. Okay, you can't make your URL lds-church-won't-help and leave it at that. Where's the rest of your URL? <laughs> this is like part of how web indexing works, people. No, I'm sorry, Jeff. It's just, just that's how it is. I the make LDS these podcasts rank, rank highly by like, if you look at the URL for the, the show, will be called whatever it's called, but then the rest of the URL say stuff like, like the Mormon conspiracy, all kinds of stuff like that, just to get ranking. I mean, it works. It works brilliantly. Yeah. Um, I think we should go out on this. Oh, you're going for it. All right. All right. Yeah. So, and this is an issue that is obviously dear to Jeff and I, this- to Jeff and me. Uh, but there is a, Emeritus BYU professor who wants beards restored to the the general population of BYU students. Didn't we just do a change.org thing about this at some point? Is this the same one? Probably. I mean, I don't imagine that this is going to do any good. The church, like, very famously doesn't respond to change.org. Like, positively. <laughs> well, not just to change.org, just to social movements oh, in yeah, general. Yeah. Like, I wish you the know, church you did get, what the Obama White House did with with wethepeople.gov. I wish you could respond to things at the church's website and get signatures. And then at a certain threshold, they would be required to issue a response to it. Well, I, rem- I remember. So we, you and I interviewed, a couple, this is a, over a year ago now, uh, Nyland McBain yeah. with her, for her book about topics. pioneering the vote. I remember a couple, a few years before that interview, I actually went to a small, like I don't know if you call it a fireside or whatever, but our, our stake put on a, a hosted her and she talked about her book women in church or women at church where she talked about different ways that we could expand and emphasize the role of women at church and give them responsibilities mm-hmm. that maybe they you know that scripturally there's no reason why they couldn't do it or you know etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. it's really interesting you know to hear her talk about the book but i remember her saying that um you know that she was pretty sure and i don't want to like put words in an island big maid's mouth or, or paraphrase her incorrectly but the gist of it was that Social pressure from groups like ordained women kind of does more harm than good because if the church had been considering like letting young women pass the sacrament, which doctrinally there's no reason why they can't, you know, that there's nothing in the doctrine of covenants that says, you know, a, you know, a young woman or any woman, anyone at all can't pass the sacrament. So if the church had been considering that, an ordained woman comes out and is like, let women pass the sacrament. 
like it's more likely that they're going to say, you know what, mm-hmm. we're not going to do that because, uh, and again, not to paraphrase and put words into the church's mouth, but it's sort of that responsive. I'm going to do it because I want to, not because you told me to, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. exactly. anyway, so uh, it's just interesting. Like when you see like these change.org petitions or like social media pushes that people are like, let, let BYU students grow beards. Like if they had been considering it, it's almost like they're like, well, now we can't do it because then every Tom, Dick and Harry who wants something is just going to raise a ruckus on social media and think they can get their way. Yeah. But it's an interesting little article but, and he makes good points. But about for all, for all origin. of that, oh, sorry, but I say for all of those, you do, have, you do have cases of like, you know, people petitioning a lot to change the policy on having adults in the room with bishops during interviews for, of sure. youth. And that's actually something that sure. should adopt. It didn't come without some collateral damage to get there, but, right. but, um, but you're, I mean, you're right. And we see that in the classic example is Emma complaining to Joseph about stains on the floor, right? right. In the, in the upper room of the Bill K Whitney store and, and that leading to the word of wisdom, like people bringing their concerns to the church does result in change. A lot of the cases, but Protesting the way in which you do it, I think is important and also the timing. And, and so again, so I, I changed that order petition with, with nearly a thousand signatures as the trib article says, I don't know if that's going to like do much. And I think this is the one um, we had from a while ago too. And they just decided to profile this guy finally. Cause I maybe. reading some, I mean, the article reading some September of the September 19th, but reading some of the copy um, on the actual change.org petition itself. Let me go back to it right here. I think that reads like the one I've read before. Bring back the beard. Cause it talked about how beards were, a, yeah, showed righteousness and all that. I think, I think this, yeah. Cause this, this petition dates back two months and the trib decided now to, you know, they must really want to push this over the line somehow because this has been around for a while. Now they're like, let's profile the BYU professor who's behind it to see if we can get it up over to the emeritus BYU professor because he he he, yes. he he only speaks up because you know it's like it's, is that you know, a status? Not the boat. Why isn't it retired BYU professor? Is emeritus? A, I thought that's a thing we only apply to general authorities. So you can be emeritus. Are you basically are you an emeritus professor? At any other well, university? Well, I think that's a general term used Is it in used? universities. Okay, I didn't know this. I don't know these things. Like, Because I think if you're tenured, you never really – like if you have tenure at a university, I don't think you ever really leave, right? Like, you know, that you, you might retire, but you're still considered a, a professor with – you know, a tenured professor at the university until you're dead. All right, so it's fair. That, There's a Wikipedia you know, article, and its current usage is an adjective to designate a retired chair, professor, pastor, bishop, pope, director, president, prime minister – rabbi, emperor, or other person who has been permitted to retain an honorary title even when no longer carrying out the... Uh, wow, I've never heard of an emeritus emperor, but it makes me neither. sense. I want the emeritus president. We should, why do we keep saying that? Former presidents, it should be emeritus president. Or impeached president. You know, depending Jared, on they, don't take uh, us there, man. We, we, we did so well. We did so well. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, I wanted to say, though, I, I do think the article does raise some good points. We're, we're kind of like poo-pooing the, like, you know, this whole effort uh, you know, to say it's not going to work. But, you know, I mean, he makes a point that, you know, that this came, the, the whole beard ban came about in the 60s as, as sort of a cultural response to, um, you know, revolutionaries and war, protester, war protesters. Uh, also, I think I've heard other people say also Islamic extremists that beards were associated with them back in the 60s. Who knows? Yeah. Whatever the point, whatever the reason was then, it, it's not, I mean, the, you know, the, the article now points out like, you know, a beard is no longer a symbol of rebellion or, you know, just trying to boot the the status quo or whatever. 
And it, it's a good point. Like there's not a social message associated with the beard like there was in the 60s or like the, you could argue there was in the 60s. Yeah. The other thing that was interesting, I saw uh, Blair Hodges, on. Uh, he used to run the BYU Maxwell Institute podcast. And so he was a, a, a employee, an employee of BYU and he wears a beard. And he commented on this article and he pointed out that um, the way that this is enforced, like if you have to, if you do need to have a beard for like a medical exception, mm-hmm. you have to reapply every year. And yeah. the way that you reapply and prove that you still need a beard exception is they make you shave. And he's like, it, he's like, this is kind of like a bad policy because I don't shave because I have this sensitive skin issue that it makes it very painful and very difficult. And, you know, it hurts my skin so badly. And yet in order to, continue to get that exemption for that purpose i had to like do that to myself it's like saying like oh really you're diabetic and you need a diabetic exception well eat this sugar and prove it to us you know like <laughs> okay so, so you're I, in a coma now all right you meant all right, it. now we believe you, you. meant it so it's just, it kind of feels you know so i mean so the point is the way it's enforced is kind of weird and the reasons for it are a little sketchy and like not on a f- solid foundation anymore so the, the article and Blair Hodges and other people have, have raised many, many good points. There's not really a good reason to keep doing this other than the fact that, well, it's just the way we've always done. Yeah. It. So I don't know. Yeah. I'm for bringing back the beard at BYU. Uh, Jeff and I are both advocates for the beard. 100%. We like them. 100%. I'm pro beard. And I'm also pro coach beard. Well, everyone, regardless of your gender affiliation, I hope you all grow beards. And... And I hope everyone beards it up big time. That's going to be it for the show this week. I think we've covered some terrific territory. Um, I enjoyed the Lula Row discussion in particular, Jared. So thank you for the insight into your. Sorry, I went a little off the rails there, but I just thought you would be entertained. It's your family. You're so entertained. Yeah, you're excited. How can you not be? You know, it's it's. I don't have cool stories like that in my family. Unless you want to talk about polygamists in the Mormon colonies. Actually, I'll, I'll give you this little tidbit. My grandmother. My grandmother came from the fourth wife in the colonies in, in Colonial Dublin, and they got married less than a year before the second manifesto dropped. So I'm like, I'm from like one of the very, very last still basically legit polygamist lines. Wow. That's what I've learned. Like, like we are like right at, right at the wire. But uh, they didn't do it after the fact. So that's that's my claim to fame right there. So that's kind of why, like, I guess... um. She was so young comparatively. I mean, you have someone who was born in the mid in the mid twenties. Uh, what, what family? This is. I'm, I'm guessing this is an open shop. No, this is this is an is Evans it? side. This is my mom's side of the family. Evans. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the open shop makes more sense because Evans is a much more common name that you, you know, and often with these polygamous families, you you <laughs> you have these names throughout the yeah. church, like. Yeah, yeah, no. You know, the op- Openshaw comes from uh, Manchester, England, and I believe though there were Openshaws who joined the church and then immigrated over. I thought you said it was Welsh. No, 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 no. No, Evans is Welsh. Evans is a Welsh. Name, I see, but uh, Open- Openshaw is northern Northern England. Got Openshaw it. is a Mancunian. Yes, sir. There's a district in Manchester called Openshaw, which I've never visited. Interesting, but perhaps huh? it's a weird last name. I talked about this on the show the other week. Openshaw's a str- I should I should be. I mean, what Gillens is better? What's Gillens? Irish? I don't know what Gillens is. No, it's also Northern England. Okay, yeah. whatever. I wish I were it from like. Northumbria instead. I mean, Manchester's fine, but I've got I've got a soft spot for those Geordies. 
you know they've the Gillenses or or Gillenses, if you will, uh, come uh, come out of Lincolnshire. So it's also an unexciting part of Northern. England. No, it's wonderful if you watch the uh, the little mini series, the English Game, all about the creation of football. Most, oh yeah, most of it takes place in Lancashire, right there. Yeah, so. Oh well, I'll have to check it Watch out. Watch it for that, your forebears. That is one of my one of the lands of my forebears. All right, well, everyone, ancestry. Wow, good times all around. I'd like to thank Jared for being here this week. It's a pleasure to see you, my friend. Pleasure to be here. And we thank you all for taking the time to listen. Can't do it without you. We hope you'll tune in again next week as we get in the run-up for conference. Lots of content will be coming out, so make sure you hit that subscribe button. And until then, we'll talk to you later. Have a terrific time. I'm Jeff. That was Jared. This week of Mormons is over.